When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Oh, we're in the thick of the playoffs. And uh, to kind of get down and dirty and discuss some X's and O's and all sorts of hardcore schematic things that are going on, I could think of no one better than a first-time guest, someone who I have admired and consumed his work for as long as I can remember, from the wonderful Half Court Hoops channel, Gibson Piper. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, thanks for coming on. You are. I, I love these things uh, in in the in the times we live in, where we're like three thousand miles apart, three time zones apart. But uh, when you start the podcast, it feels like you're in the same room after a while. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it was, in these times, everything's virtual, so you know we kind of have to adapt. And I think it's cool just to be able to have this conversation about basketball at any point in time, but especially now in in you know September. It's just strange. So really quickly, orient people who maybe aren't as familiar with you and your work, um, sort of not just the channel, but your background, your coaching experience, and, and the perspective you take. Um, I love the way you inject your process in a lot of your videos and content. Just speak to that really briefly so we can have some sort of common ground before we dive into teams. Yeah, for sure. So I currently coach high school basketball. I'm an assistant varsity basketball coach at a school in, in Wake Forest, North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh. Um, my whole goal with my channel and my website, um, thebasketballplaybook.com, is to help coaches. That's just kind of what it boils down to. It's heavily focused on X's and O's and like the minute details you may not notice um, in, in a possession-by-possession possession basis where you know you really focus on what teams are doing, what they're running, how they run it, how they adjust, how they're being defended. You know, you can take one possession and find 30 different coaching lessons in it. And so I tried to take the X's and O's of the game and kind of share that with coaches of all levels, um, particularly high school, college is is my main, I guess, growth area. Um, when I was first starting out, I wanted to I guess, uh, consume some of this more, more of this information and learn as a young coach and right. I couldn't. So I kind of decided to, you know, go, go my own, make my own path. And, and that's where it kind of evolved into now. Yeah. And it's just, it's one of those things where I like how you start by saying, Hey, this is, you know, coach coaches for coaches, because I find as someone who sometimes is thought of as like a stats guy or an analytics person or even just getting into film without being a coach as a commentator those tools are so helpful for so many people i've actually found a lot of knowledge in like watching recorded coaching seminars on youtube and just thinking about how things have changed since i was in that environment you know 15 20 years ago when you're playing and everything that's changed in the 21st century so um yeah let's let's get down to brass tacks because we're in the middle of the bubble playoffs. Um, what's the biggest thing that's sort of jumped out to you so far about the postseason this year? I think for me, it's the Celtics. Um, they, they, they basically look like they don't care who they're playing, which is a strange thing when you talk about the, you know, facing the 76ers with, with a player like Embiid and then the Raptors who are, you know, maybe the best team in the bubble. Um, from you know just a, a playing standpoint, momentum standpoint, they just look like they're just out there and they're going to beat whoever they're coming up against pretty easily. They haven't really had any resistance so far, um, even in the first Raptors Celtics matchup. It, they just didn't look concerned with what's going on um, offensively, but more importantly, defensively, their ability to uh, not you know have Kemba Walker being taken advantage of, just to kind of disrupt whatever the other team's doing, but then also offensively converting that into Tatum's been almost unguardable. Brown looks great. And they're just overall chemistry. They just seem connected and like they're not worried about what anybody else is doing. Do you think, and maybe, you know, you can speak to 
where you see a schematic weakness or strength. But do you think some of that has to do with Hayward actually being out of the fold and you go to that smart starting lineup and it just seems to me going all the way back to I got to see them up close in person in Anaheim last year at the World Cup trials against Spain those four guys that quartet of Celtics playing together Tatum Brown Smart and Kemba Walker do you think there's something about well-defined roles and versatility that is maybe allowing the machine to be at least as of now more well-oiled than we've seen it yeah, I think it's all been solidified. And also in inserting Kemba in there, his personality is not only on the court, but off the court. He seems like he just is fun to be around. And yeah, I think yeah. that does play a huge factor. And if your point guard and maybe your best you know, score is is that you know exuberant about the game and even life, I think that has a huge impact. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. That makes sense. Um, and I also like the versatility you'll have moments with them i feel like where if kemba's got it going or you're playing a team with drop coverage and kemba's got it going they'll just run that same high pick and roll and he can do his thing where he gets to the pull up or gets to the basket but then now you've got this option where tatum has different points of attack in the system jalen brown has different points of attack in the system you know smart's not going to sometimes a little bit but he's not going to try to do too much he's either going to get that spot up shot or he's going to try to get in and create uh, and play that role it just feels like everything is kind of fit pretty well for them right now yeah and one of the things that when we talk about playoff basketball it's pretty much can you exploit you know the weaknesses on the other team or can you cover up your own weaknesses and what the Celtics do just by having that that lineup is they automatically have an offensive advantage because they're playing those four skilled I guess guards or you know wings if you want to call them and you can't take advantage of them defensively right now. They do such a good job of not only Kemba defending ball screens, but he doesn't really get caught off if they do switch. They'll just switch right back off the ball. They're so smart and so skilled that you, there's really not a weakness that you can attack right now. You know, that reminds me of something that I, I, I somehow missed last October when they were, do you remember when they were remeasuring people without shoes? Do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, a, I've kind of been over the years in my historical work, I've been as listeners know slightly obsessive about clarifying actual heights because they get distorted depending on the era and things like that so they went back and they did this in october before the season and i somehow missed this uh, this is actually a good time to uh, segue into the the sponsor which is the athletic of this podcast jay king who writes for the athletic had a detailed article about jason tatum's actual height and so if you're someone like Tatum these days, you might get me measured at the hoop summit when you're 17. You might have a draft combine measurement. He didn't. And then they came back and measured him here. And this whole piece, uh, Jay King at The Athletic, it's theathletic.com slash thinking basketball if you want to sign up and get 40% off. Great way to support the podcast, theathletic.com slash thinking basketball. And, and basically, uh, Gibson, what Jay says in this piece is that Tatum has grown since he was drafted. And if they did not do this shoe measurement this year with shoes, he would have legitimately been six nine. Like he's a legitimate six eight now. And I think he also says his wingspan has has grown from when it was measured at Hoop Summit, and it's almost seven feet. And I think you see that on the court when he's either guarding the nail or or guarding bigger guys kind of on the block or helping in the paint, that length and that size, creating the versatility both ways that you just mentioned. Absolutely. And one of the things that they're kind of doing to the Raptors right now is putting him on Lowry, you know, and, and they're using his length to disrupt. I mean, they do a lot of switching, but they're definitely making that a point of emphasis to make Lowry see a long defender and a smart defender. And, you know, I posted on Twitter a little bit ago, but Brad Stevens even said, you know, we're trying to make Van Vliet Lowry just see bodies and stay vertical and just make sure they don't see anything but arms when they go up for layups. Yeah, it's an interesting matchup with them because I feel like neither Lowry or Van Vliet get offense in the way that, say, someone like Tatum gets offense, right? Like, their their action is either going to be spot up, movement, downhill, side to side. They just, they physically aren't the type of finishers or self-creators with their shot 
where they're going to like dance and cook a defender. And so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have more to say to that, but maybe what I was going to segue into is talk about what you see Toronto being able to do as a counter to what the Celtics came out with in game one and kind of where you see the series going on that front. Yeah. So I think there's two ways the Raptors are going to attack. Uh, one of them is by playing more zone defense. Um, they had 11 possessions in the first game when they went to zone, forced five turnovers, held the Celtics to like 0.52 points per possession in those 11 possessions. That was really effective and impactful. I think Nurse would have gone to it more if the game was closer. So I expect more zone going forward. And then on offense, I think the biggest adjustment is basically getting Pascal Siakam in a ball screen with either Van Vliet, Lowry, somebody else besides Mark Gasol or Ibaka setting the setting the pick. Um, they run really good action with with those guards setting those ball screens for Siakam all the time. They didn't have one possession running a ball screen for Siakam with the guard setting it. And that, to me, is really, really bad, either not noticing it in the moment or not thinking that you'll have the advantage to not even try it, especially when you're not having a ton of half-court offense you know, success in the half-court. Um, how much do you like Pascal in the post? We saw a decent amount of it in game one. And how much do you think we'll see of it going forward in the series? I dislike it when he's going against Marcus Smart or even Semi Ojale, who apparently is... <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a tank? <laughs> Appar- yeah, I think someone called him a human squat rack yeah. on Twitter. I mean, that was just like a perfect explanation of it. Like, he just he just could not move those two players in particular. He did okay against Brown. I'm not a huge fan of it, not because he can't take advantage of it, but he's not a great passer out of the post, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. I think he's, he's, he's a good playmaker in the ball screen, and he's good driving, you know, the driving kick game. But he's not an, an, an extremely good passer out of the post. And we saw Embiid even struggle with that. Some of the quick double teams the Celtics threw at him, he just wasn't able you know, to, to make those efficient passes. And the Celtics are so good at recovering. I just don't prefer you know, to, to attack the Celtics in that manner. I would rather see them either you know, switch, try to get Kemba switched onto Siakam, or try to get you know, attack the, the weakness, you know, so isolate you know, semi don't, don't go in the post. He's he, that's where you want you to go. Um, be able to try and, and attack those mismatches in what I call hunt ball screens, where you just basically find the other team's worst defender and just ball screen, ball screen, ball screen until you get a switch. Yeah. Yes. The old get my, my favorite yeah. call. Um, that is when you, you know, get, get the guy who you want to bring up to the ball yep. screen so you can hunt him. Uh, let's go to the other end. Uh, a lot of talk on social media and some chatter, after game one, Toronto known for, um, let's say, I want to phrase this the right way, not prioritizing the corner three defensively. Um, do you think we'll see any changes on that end from the Raptors based on what you saw in game one? No. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> you, you, mean, I mean, that's what got you to the dance, right? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of simple. You look at... Um, you know, you look at Milwaukee and, and Miami, they give up the most threes. Toronto gives up the most threes in the NBA. That's that's who they are. I mean, you have the second ranked overall defense. I don't think defense is necessarily the issue. Um, it is to an extent. But if you can't make shots, you can't set up your defense. So it, it kind of goes, you know, full circle transition offense to transition defense. If you can't score in transition, if you can't get a stop, you know, you can't go score in transition. If you can't score, you can't set up your defense, so you can't get a stop. It's it's that cycle that you know coaches talk about. And so I just think they're gonna they're gonna help off the corners and they're gonna live with some of those shots. Uh, the the Celtics didn't really do anything different to exploit it. They just played the normal game, knowing they're gonna help off the corner. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if if Toronto does tweak that. But I I really really would doubt that that's I mean, that's who they are. I did a, a, a defensive clinic on their deep, you know playoffs last year. The same thing. That's how they won the championship last year. Mm. No, keep going. Uh, yeah, I just I just for me at this point teams are who they are in in that I guess sense of of how they set up their defense. Will they change matchups? Will they change switching so they don't have to help necessarily off of like ball screens? Maybe. But I think in general, they're teams who are who they are right now. You had a great point in another recent video on uh, the Celtics and the Raptors in transition. And that was a, a data point about how the possession will be categorized as a transition possession 
there's a selection bias in a way where if the defense is weak enough, it will allow the score early and thus be in transition. But if the defense is just strong enough, then it's it, there's a stop and everything kind of gets pushed into uh, the half-court offense. I thought that was such a great point. And maybe to that end, how much do you see both of these teams, I'm thinking of the Raptors here, but I think the Celtics have it to a degree as well. How much in film study do you see both of these teams getting that you know coach's dream defense into offense, turnover, long rebound, whatever, making that easier for them to score when they get to the other side versus always setting up against a half-court defense? Yeah, I think the so the Raptors do a much better job of running off of makes. So like when the Celtics make a basket, the Raptors get the ball out quickly and attack earlier in transition. I feel like they definitely have the advantage when it comes to running, no matter what the scenario is. The difference is the Celtics' ability to score in transition, but then if they don't score, they can create a mismatch versus the Raptors' defense easier than the Raptors can create it against the Celtics' defense in the half court. So like when we talk about the transition push, you know, you may not necessarily score off the initial push. You know, in the first seven, eight seconds, you're not going to score because the Raptors do a good job, you know, setting up their defense. But if you get Van Vliet cross-matched onto mm. Tatum, that still, to me, would be categorized as a transition score in a way because you created that advantage by pushing the ball so early. Right, but so it, I, it's transition-influenced, but in a lot of the numbers, it actually comes out... It gets that's one of those things that gets washed into the the half court numbers if you look at like the way a synergy categorizes it or something like that. Yeah, and it's it's so difficult to you know I'm sure that the NBA guys have all that data, um, but like it's just so difficult because you have to watch every possession and then track every possession. So it's it's not a transition score; it's a scored and scored in the half court, but the transition created that scoring opportunity. Mm. Let's jump while we're in the uh, semifinals in the East. Let's jump over to the Bucks and the Heat. Uh, you just did a video last night, this morning. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. In reaction to Game One, and and before I let you go on what you saw, for me coming into this series, uh, I talked about this uh, on the preview episode for the playoffs on the pod. The the Heat were a team I viewed as they are a bad matchup for Milwaukee, but I don't know if they have enough. You know, Bam's versatility, you saw it in the regular season games, obviously Spolstra and the things he'll do. Uh, did you see anything in game one that maybe makes you think Milwaukee's in real trouble? Is there a change that needs to be made? Or was this just a, you know, these are two good teams. Uh, Miami had a good day. They, they match up well. They did what they want to do. And it's a playoff series and you come back for game two. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a couple of interest, really interesting things with this series in particular. The number one thing for me is I think the Bucks are losing because of the weird Budenholzer lineups and like some of the mm. holding Giannis back. Um, I said this in, in the breakdown. I don't really like criticizing coaches because I just I'm a coach. I know how hard it is. We are not in the film room. We are not in the scouting prep. You know, we don't know the why behind most of these decisions, unless a coach comes out and says it in a press conference, which they never will, especially in the playoffs. <laughs> um, so the the thing, I mean, he put out two different lineups. I don't remember the exact ones. I think it was like Hill, DiVincenzo, Corver, Lopez, and Matthews at the start of the second quarter who had never seen the court together all season. And it's like, you're in the second round of the playoffs. Like, wow. I just that just didn't make any sense to me. Just so so just that was a weird decision. And then Giannis probably just needs to play more. I mean, I think he's only playing like 30 minutes per game in the play in, in the playoffs, 32 minutes last night, maybe. And it's just to me, those are easy fixes. You know, you don't you don't gain anything. They're up 11 in the second quarter. If you start Giannis with that group, maybe you can maintain or, or extend that lead. But, you know, he, he went with Giannis and, and Middleton right back right after the, the Heat, I think, scored and got an and one. But it's like you just gave him five points and, and, and you can't really afford to do that in the playoffs. So that was the first weirdness, you know, that I just didn't 
I didn't like it. I hope it's a quick adjustment and maybe it was an experiment and assistant coach brought up and, and now it's over with. Um, this, the can, second thing is, go ahead. B- before the second one, can we go back to that unique lineup? I mean, when you see something, I had a little bit of this in uh, the video I just did right before we're recording here on the Rockets Thunder Game 6 and some of the sort of Rockets offensive philosophy down the stretch. When you see something like that, and it jumps out as being abnormal or it's uh, easily, you know, it's low hanging fruit to criticize. Do you think there's got to be something driving it? Like there was some tactical thing that they specifically wanted to try this lineup or they saw something on film, either from the regular season matchup or from the, you know, the first round of the preceding games or something like that. What, what do you, what's your approach sort of when you see something, um, let's say quirky or new like that? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably two things. It's one, you are hoping to maybe keep Giannis and Middleton together, keep the best players together, right? As, as a coach, you want to kind of play your best units together. So if you could get away, like let's say you're up 11, start a second quarter, let's try this lineup. Maybe we have enough shooting and spacing and, and solid defense that we'll be able to maintain for three minutes so we can get our guys back in and mm. they can have a, you know, a good rest together. Um, that's probably probably the thought process at least that's what my thought process would be but at the end of the day you know because of the way that the bucks rotation always works you know that Giannis could play more minutes if needed like he could play three more minutes in a game and it would still only be you know 35 minutes it wouldn't be a crazy you know Thibodeau number yeah of, he, of he minutes did, per game he did hit 36 last night he did okay. yeah I just looked yeah. it up as we we're as we we're chatting because that was a point of discussion I think he played Wherever he was in the fourth quarter in his last stint, he played the rest of it out to get to 36 minutes. But, I mean, the point you're making has been widely brought up, and it's something that has been on people's minds, I think, based on the way the Bucks have done their rotations in the regular seasons for two years, for a regular season for two years, where when you get to the postseason, if you have a player this valuable, you know, if you have an MVP-level talent, you want... 40 minutes as close to 100% versus 37 minutes, and we would assume that there isn't a huge performance drop-off. So to your point, those three minutes can make a big difference. The, yeah, they absolutely can. And we're talking about the MVP and the defensive yeah, player that's of the right, year. That's like, right. like maybe the most valuable player in the league if you look at the overall context of everything. And it's like you have to... And, and you just have to you're trying to go win a championship, right? You're, you're that's the goal. You're not conserving anymore. The, the players had did have a long, you know, extension, a long break, uh, you know, that they should be fresh, especially with the rotations that you have. You're not playing the magic like it's go time. Right? Like You have to just put your best lineups out there. Yeah. Do you remember the second weirdness that you observed? Um, I didn't have a second weirdness. I had a second observation. Oh, OK, that, go ahead. That, yeah. Yeah. That, that was. <laughs> Uh, the Heat are a tough matchup because of the way that they play. And and what I mean by that is um, what, what's typically referred to as zoom action. I don't know if anybody's heard of this, heard them term that. But where you'll see a Heat player catch the ball and there's like a, a split second where the play might stop or normally a team would go into a spread ball screen. The Heat don't do that. They throw the ball to Bam and then all four players cut and move. And right, it's right. just it's chaotic. They killed and, them with that. Yes, and and they 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 kill tons of teams with it just because not only are they a, a high volume three point shooting team, but they are a high quality three point shooting team. So when you're putting pressure from the three point line, which the Bucks tend you know give up obviously the most threes in the league, but not only that, you have to change your philosophy a little bit, and you can see the Bucks overextending just a second, and that's all it takes to get hit with a backdoor cut, and mm. the backdoor cut could create open, you know, a split cut where it opens up, and then they don't. They don't go right into a ball screen. They'll throw it to Bam. He'll hand it back. Then he'll go into a ball screen. So now you're guarding three to four simultaneous actions at once with all five players, and it's chaotic. And that's where the Heat kind of live. And uh, Spolster made a good observation in the first half. He felt like they were getting sped up by the Bucks' pressure, which they were. They, they were kind of uh, making quick decisions that weren't good. And then the second half, they kind of settled in, slowed down, you know, r- ran the action. You know, Dragic helped kind of calm a little bit in the first half. But then Butler stepped up in the second half and was like, all right, I'll just go ahead and calm this down myself. Uh, they ran the Butler-Dragic ball screen throughout the game. It just puts a ton of pressure on you defensively. I thought the Bucks did a good job, but it's just so difficult to guard that way for the whole game, knowing that you'll never really get a chance to just guard a basic spread ball screen. 
Yeah, I'm. I don't know how into into NBA history you you geek out on, but I'm going to go back to the like a team like the Jazz of the '90s, who had this bread and butter kind of set that you know whether it's flex flex action or constantly running cross screens to free up Malone and the little hawk cuts and things all, all that stuff that if you go back and geek out on is there and i think one of the things with them that was kind of either seen as a criticism i buy into it to a certain degree is in the regular season from night to night that works but there's an adaptability in the postseason it's still effective right but it's not like um you have as many counters once a defense figures out the sort of rhythm and cadence of those cuts. Now, the Heat, I would describe Spolstra's stuff as certainly having a more dynamic, robust repertoire of some of these plays. But they do have, you know, I don't know how you want to cut it, three or four kind of pet actions that they get a lot out of. Is this the kind of thing that you think Milwaukee can adapt to, like that Zoom stuff that you were talking about with Bam. Bam's holding the ball. You got four guys flying around on the other side of the court. I mean, can you adjust to that to kind of take away the number of easy buckets that that generates over the course of the series? Or do you see this as something that is really the Bucks are going to kind of be stuck on on that end uh, throughout the rest of the series? I think they could definitely, you know, make it difficult. Um, I think that a big part of why it's harder to guard is because it's a lot of it's just read based, especially in, in the flow of the game where, you know, you get different matchups and transition and, and you get you know, switch on different guys where, you know, if you're guarding Duncan Robinson, you got to know any sort of movement. You can't, you have to be on his hip. Whereas Crowder, you don't really have to be on his hip so you can go under it. But, but in the moment you're, you're so yeah, obsessed right. with, with, with your, with your player. But then if you switch off the ball, now you're work now you, so it's just, you know the scouting report changes per player, and they all have the ability to shoot the three, which which doesn't doesn't help anybody. Um, but I think the the Bucks did actually did a really good job. A lot of what they're doing is they're kind of deflecting those cuts or top locking, staying above the player, you know, denying him from going off the handoff, and then that allows uh, Lopez or Giannis, whoever's playing in, in the paint, to kind of absorb those cuts, similar to what the 76ers did to the Celtics in the first round to try and disrupt their offense, just not as good. Um, the Bucks are going to try and basically take away the handoff. Um, the problem is is if you take away the handoff and then you get a switch and you get you know Butler who can then take advantage of the switch, that's where the issues start to arise. So it's smart switching off the ball and then being able to basically disrupt any clean looks from three. And it's much easier said than done. I thought they did actually a really good job in game one. Um, I think the the Heat won't get as many easy looks in the paint, but I think they might hit more threes, and that's the trade-off you got to kind of kind of live with. So one of the kind of hot, takey responses after game one was this idea of Giannis guarding Butler uh, leaving aside for a second the you know the concept that there's going to be switches and screening actions and things like that do, do you think that's something that is worthwhile to explore or um, I mean I, I did a pretty deep dive on Giannis's defense so it didn't jump out to me as like oh you'd want to put Giannis on Butler per se but I mean based on all the action you're talking about and all the sort of movement and handoffs and and, and dynamic nature of their offense would that be something you'd go to or do you do you sort of like the way the defensive matchups are set for the Bucks? I like the way the matchups are set I think Middleton did a great job yeah, um the, yeah. the 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 value of Giannis to me defensively comes off the ball agree um his yep. his his weak side help and rotations and his rim protection like that's why he won the defensive player of the year yeah not because he's some sort of you know ball you know ball <laughs> stopper you know the shutdown hardened type like that's not I mean could he do it yeah probably he's he's athletic enough and long enough to disrupt a lot of things but the, what the Heat would do is they would just pull Giannis out on Butler and then give it to somebody else, and now you know he's helping off a of Butler. It's just his the whole goal of the Heat system is to overhelp and then try and contest a three. And to me, Giannis's help responsibilities are so much more valuable than uh, uh, being a a one on one defender. You you mean the Bucks? You said the Heat system. Yeah. You mean the Bucks? Yep. Yeah. The um, Bucks. Well, the Heat system does too, but the Bucks <laughs> more <laughs> more aggressively do that. Yeah. No, I completely agree, and I and I I don't know who asked that question, but you know, I I do think that 
kind of thinking falls into a very old school basketball is a one-on-one game. Uh, and not only has that never really been true, but now more than ever, and in this series, sort of the the hardcore X's and O's, all of the stuff that you're going to see that Miami's going to try, the way Milwaukee wants to defend, I-, I agree. It wasn't something that jumped out to me, and I'm not sure it would necessarily even be, uh, you know, like a, an ace in the hole or something like that. Um, any more thoughts on these two series before we move to the West? Uh, yeah, I'll touch. I want to touch on the Heat Bucks one one last thing. And maybe the NBA as a whole. I'm just so sick of watching teams at the end of the game just giving them a switch they want. Like, yeah, go, go, please, preach. I'll sit just, back. It's so, it's so frustrating <laughs> to watch George Hill just get switched on a Jimmy Butler like he didn't torch him. And like, you know, the Rockets are doing it. They just find hard. Yeah. Last night, CP3 was just like, come here, Covington. Let's just get you the next four possessions and I'll just score every time. It's just like, and the last switch of that game he was at half court, like like I know Covington. I had a I had a, a, a former NBA coach and college coach text me immediately afterwards, and was, and he made a good point. He said, "Look, if Covington's all defense, he's he's got to make that stop." And I was like, "Fair," but also he was getting killed. Like if if you're at a disadvantage, like you know George Hill is struggling to guard Jimmy Butler, and they're setting a screen with Goran Dragic. Don't switch that. If Goran Dragic is gonna pick and pop. And, and hit a three, which I don't think is his strong suit, then so be it. But, like, you have to do it. You have to hedge on Jimmy Butler. You have to trap. Do something besides just letting him walk into mm, yeah. baskets. It's just it's frustrating to watch that. I, I, think I, I think I disagree a little in the sense that, like, you can be all defense and not be perfect at everything. And so, in this case, you've got Paul. You've got a point guard. You're switching on to the point guard. That literally is Covington's weakness, especially getting him, you know, 25, 27 feet out facing up to start the possession. But I love that you brought up the larger point. The team I think about it with a lot is the Rockets, not necessarily because they're uniquely complacent in their switches, but because their scheme is so switch heavy that it's times like that in the game where I wonder, do you have sort of the... Um, maybe let's say the vocabulary as an individual or as a team or as two guys coming into ball screen action. Do you have that vocabulary ingrained in you to realize like you not only don't need to switch this, but you don't want to. And there's stuff you can do technically to not just give up the switch 30 feet from the hoop. Uh, That last play was so it just felt so casual watching it. Like you knew Paul wanted to hunt Covington and he came down, and it, it felt like it took no work to give up that switch. Yeah, I was just shaking my head sitting here by myself. I was just like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> like I, and, and then to compound that switch, like P.J. Tucker is probably one of the best help defenders in the NBA. He was in position. You don't have to swipe. If you're beat, you're beat. So be it. Don't yep. bail him out. Like, you know you have help behind you. P.J. Tucker was there. It just is it's just frustrating overall. But Yeah, so that, that's been a fun series. Um like let's just I guess, I guess we kind of talked our way into that series as we're recording this uh, game seven still to be played um, and of course one of those teams will go on and face the Lakers and I would like to discuss that perspective matchup a little bit but this has been a really interesting series I think that that Harden sort of how they defend him uh, the Lou Dort situation and Dort coming in, having so much success in man defense, then the Rockets adjusting by setting more ball screens. I actually thought Harden for most of the game last night had a had a really good game, uh, and it's been interesting to watch that sort of dynamic unfold. But w- what do you think about this has been a twisting and turning seven-game series? Yeah, it's been really like I, I can't I can't even get a grip on like, or grasp <laughs> on like what's happening like. The the Rockets seem like the better team by a lot at times, and they'll go up 15, and then all of a sudden they're down three. And you're like, I just was watching <laughs> – what? So it's just to, – to me, the Rockets uh, are the most fun, frustrating team to watch, and it's because they do so many good things – that don't result in good things. <laughs> like they don't mm. result in made baskets. Like you'll you'll see like Harden is so masterful. Even when the Thunder and Dort do a great job on him, he finds the open player. He'll find Tucker in the corner for a wide open three anytime he wants. And the Rockets just can't convert half the time. And then on the flip side, I feel like he exerted so much energy defensively last night in particular 
that, you know, that he's trying everything he can. He just is, is almost out of gas. And then, you know, you have the, the Russ coming back, which I don't know if that helps or hurts. So it's just, and then yeah. Chris Paul is just, wait, he just waits. He just, <laughs> he just lets everybody else do their thing. He's like, all right, I guess I'll take over now. Or it's, it's like, okay, the Rockets get this one. I'll get the next one. Like he just, he just waits until he's needed. And then it's, it's his time. He's got a special kind of old man game going on right now, right? Where you get later in your career, the pattern I think so often is you can do it, but you you can't sustain it. You know, it's very hard to play 40 minutes. It's very hard to take over the game and carry the load. But you see this with older players sometimes in like NBA finals matchups where they have a really bad game one and they come back and they have a game two and then that's it. They, They had the great game two. Paul to me is doing this in game every night. As you just said, he just like, all right, I'm out on the court. We're playing basketball. Other guys are happening. I'll pass it around. You get to the fourth quarter. You get to the last seven minutes. Then he starts looking for a shot. Then he starts putting guys in the, you know, the the dance package, if you will. Like it's very interesting to watch how patient he's been, and then how successful he is at the end of games. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. It's something that LeBron does too. Like LeBron, every first quarter, LeBron in the playoffs, especially in Cleveland, he would just pass it to somebody. And be like, all right, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna help me? No. All right, all right. Next, like he would just give guys opportunities, and they don't help, and then he go, okay, I'll guess I'll do it now. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable how um, it, it just it, he he kind of takes snaps. Chris Ball kind of takes snapshots of what's happening. And like how the Rockets are adjusting or guarding. And then he'll just wait to use that information later or maybe not even use the information later. Um, but the thing that I love is how he's always kind of coaching up the other guys on the on the court. Like he's mm-hmm. giving Schroeder advice. He's giving SGA advice. He's 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 in guys ears, you know, letting them know what's going on. Like his leadership has just been really, really cool to see um, off the court as well. But on the court, just be able to see him kind of talk to guys and, and let them know what's going on. I mean, just be that calming, like just relaxing presence on the sideline one thing that's really surprised me about this series is and we can get into the defensive side because that maybe is a bigger component but on offense for Oklahoma City they're here in game seven I agree with you they've looked like sort of the classically weaker team as you watch the game unfold in terms of who's getting what they want and all this stuff and yet they're here and the surprise to me is that uh, SGA Shea Gildress Alexander I don't think has had a very good series and has been um really you know stepping forward in terms of getting what he could get on the court at least the prospect of him based on the regular season but Dennis Schroeder you know to your point about Chris Paul's mentorship like he's the guy who offensively seems like he's been the other key spark plug for the Thunder you see anything there you 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 buy that or um what do you think well, Schroeder's ability on offense, I don't think has ever really been in question. Um, I think he's always been a pretty skilled scorer. Uh, he just had to kind of mentally lock in and kind of focus on, on I guess, how to score and when to score. His his first step, you know, I, I compared him and Austin Rivers between like the fastest first steps in the series because they, they always do like the weird herky-jerky hesitation and then hit <laughs> you with like a, a weird finish that you don't expect. Um, but um, when you know Schroeder, his ability to score in isolation is, has been really impactful. His first step and his ability, you know, when you switch everything, you're basically stagnating the other team's offense. And the Thunder have those three guards who are all really good in isolation. So when you're switching and they can kind of pick, you know, who they want to go at, especially against maybe the Rockets' second unit at times, um, his ability to to make weird finishes and weird moves and and <laughs> just kind of calm himself slow himself down but at the same time speed himself up so controlling his speed like in atlanta you'd see him just go yeah he would right. just be 100 percent down the court go to the rim and see what happens and now here i think chris paul's effect has been hey look you know you can use your you're, you're so fast but if you learn how to control that you're even more effective and i think that's what's kind of taken it to to his next level yeah i mean if you think about developing players pace helps but change of pace can be significantly more important maybe no one exemplifies that more than Harden on the other side of the court right it's not just about how fast you're going it's about when you're when you're changing speeds when you start and slow down and and yeah I I just think he's been um, fantastic in this series on the other side of the court uh, one of the things I do think has happened in those spots where you're like watching the game and you can't figure out 
what's going on with the Thunder. Fresh off uh, looking at the film from Game 6, for me, it was the same experience down the stretch where it looked like the you know the Thunder were behind. I mean, the Rockets were behind. They hit a couple huge shots. They had a big run. They took like a, I want to say a five-point lead. Uh, it turned into six late in the game off the Chris Paul technical foul, 98-92. It was a six-point game. And then they were able to come back. And yes, they made key scores. But I thought their defensive positioning, uh, the way they played, what the Rockets wanted to do, the way they defended Harden, uh, the way they basically ignored and sagged off Westbrook at key moments to pack the paint, I thought that made things really, really difficult for Houston. And again, you're back in this thing where like Houston's offense didn't produce the things that you would think it would produce. Yeah, and Houston's like I know they shoot threes. Like I, like I get it. I, I study them more, way more than anybody else has, just because I, I coach high school basketball. So five out is what we run in high school. So I like to see what they do. And some of the threes and shots that they take are not good shots. Like they're just shooting a three because that's what they do. Where I think they could seek better scoring opportunities on, and if they just dr- like drive and kick three or four times, they'll have a wide open in rhythm three. So I think some of the settles come into play where it's like, okay, they're clogging the lane. Russ is open. Let's get him, kick him and let him go downhill. And then maybe he'll kick to somebody who can shoot a three. And it's like, well, that's what the thunder want you to do. Yeah. You know, like they're, that's that's a win for them. And so we're kind of seeing and, and obviously Russ is it's not fair, to, in my opinion, to uh, critique his game. He's coming off an injury thrown into a playoffs game, you know, game five and six. And it's like that's so hard. I can't even imagine the, the difficulty of trying to find your rhythm, you know, coming, you know, coming back in that heightened environment. But he, he just hasn't been good, you know. Right, right. And I think to your point, some of those key plays down the stretch were indicative of that kind of rust he had two or three big turnovers they were you know kind of in a rush or out a little out of control um and he even had one shot which i thought was a, a great set and a great look they do it they do it all the time they got the clear out for him on one side um he had sga to go against he got a clear step and he just flubbed the layup at the rim and it's like you know that's not good but that's also what happens when you've sat for a little bit and you're coming off an injury yeah, it's just that's just what happens. It's just it's just rust. And I mean, you know, he he did good things. Like in transition, you could see his value. Um, the the issue is defensively, he wasn't very good. And and to me, he's never been a great defender. But like using his explosiveness to his advantage is something that the Rockets have done a lot this year with him. And I don't think he's been he he's been great in the regular season. But he had enough effort where he couldn't be, I guess, like attacked um, even off on cuts. Like there's one time Gavin I just just face cut him and he got bailed out with a block it just he he didn't seem like it seemed like if d'antoni pulled him he might be upset but the rockets might win mm, yeah i buy that um let's circle back really quickly before we move on to the final series the I, the video i did most recently on my youtube channel was about houston and one of the things that really jumped out to me was they they were 24th this year in three-point percentage and it's like you've got this system where you have a lot of threes and you generate a lot of threes, but they don't have that many shooters. And, and one of the things that was kind of uh, discussed as a little bit of pushback against that was, well, maybe they could be better shooters, right? Like, is Eric Gordon really a 31 or 32% three-point shooter? Or to your point, is it shot selection? They're at 36% in this series, but I'm, I'm alluding to Gordon specifically because He's shooting 19% from three, and that's obviously just a little noise in a slump. But, you know, can you either get better looks from outside or turn those into another drive and kick to kind of, you know, keep the defense on a string and keep that advantage that you've created hunting a better shot, which doesn't always have to be a three. Some of those turn into layups or little easy, easy bunnies in the lane. Yeah, and I think that's the the dichotomy of the system, right? It's like you shoot a lot of threes, but you're not a great shooting team. But if you shot them closer, are you, would you be better? If you shot less, mm. would you be better? You know, yeah. it's like, that's, that's the kind of the decision-making process in, in, in your brain. And I mean, that's who you are. That's, that's who you are. They've had, obviously had success. 
Um, but at, at the end of the day, you know, we kind of talked about the transition game where it's it's you if you can force a team to miss a shot. Now you're running in transition where you're you're you know, you, you're great. You can find open looks and they can't set up their defense. You can't get Dort's not set up on Harden. But if you're not getting the stops and then and you're not getting makes, it's just that that overall cycle again. So to me, I, I personally, I would like to see them. Uh, drive and kick more and, and maybe look for a couple more advantages. Uh, but at the end of the day, when teams know what you're looking for, they are, I guess, easier, you know, to, to know how to, how to contest your shot, you know, so you may get more contested threes because everybody knows you're looking for them. So mm. you'll get more of the flyby closeouts versus the shorter closeout where you may get an open look, um, which I think is also an interesting kind of, you know, thing to watch as a coach. Either of these teams, do you think? Uh, let, let's, let me rephrase that. Which one of these teams do you think presents a more difficult matchup for the Lakers? And do you see either of them uh, being a problem for them in the next round? Uh, Houston is the more difficult matchup, uh, primarily because who's going to guard Harden? You know, they, the Lakers, in my opinion, don't have anybody to really throw at Harden. Who? I mean, okay, sure, LeBron, yeah. But you think LeBron's going to lock no. down Harden for 40 minutes a game? No, not even close. Um, so it's 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 that that to me is like who guards Harden, you know. But then I don't think either of these teams have a chance against the Lakers. Um, I just personally, the Lakers have the two best players on the floor uh, on both ends when when they want, and that means a lot. An Anthony Davis over Harden guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I value defense um, a little bit more than just just the offensive scoring. And and to me, um, Anthony Davis presents so many problems for other teams because they can match up small with the with the Lakers or with the um, Rockets or the Thunder. The Lakers can. And I just think Anthony Davis is so I guess I think he might even be undervalued at this point. Um, his his ability to control a game without looking like he's even trying is kind of really interesting. I Gibson and I have never talked about this. I did not pay him to say any of this. <laughs> I did not prompt him beforehand. You've heard it. Another person in the Anthony Davis is underrated camp. Uh, I don't know if you caught it. I had a, a video <laughs> earlier this year on how he's underrated. And I've always been very high on him. I just the the two-way versatility that he presents he is a versatile player on offense and defense and therefore fits around high-level talent um, he's very good at specific things he's good at a number of things and I I, I kind of tend to see it the same way but it seems like uh, an outlying opinion these days so um, very cool I agree with you by the way I think that the, the Rockets just they're gonna present I think more variance with the way they play and I haven't looked at those regular season matchups in a while, but I did many, many, you know, way back. When was that? Seven years ago, back when they, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. before the shutdown. Um, <laughs> but, but my recollection is that the Lakers uh, handled that pretty well. And I, you know, it's possible that missing someone like Avery Bradley uh, kind of uh, defangs their point of attack defense to the point where Houston is even more um, capable of generating some of these looks that you know, give them a pretty good puncher's chance. But uh, in general, I agree with you. Let's go to the last series. The, uh, the, the Nuggets jazz. I get, <laughs> I get, yes, I know. I know. I, so I've been getting the same question for about a week from everyone I talk to who can pick my brain about basketball, who doesn't work inside basketball. And that is what in the world is going on with the Nuggets and the jazz, with the bubble, with Jamal Murray, with Donovan Mitchell, is it? I happen to think it's an alchemy of a number of situations all adding up. But I mean, do you have a take on what we're seeing? Are these two guys all of a sudden like have they just taken? We need a new word other than leap because Jamal Murray is playing like out of this universe. Is this something specific to the bubble, or is there something else going on here? Uh, you know, who knows? Sometimes <laughs> players play good, man. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, no, why, when you watch, you know, the, these two teams, it's pretty clear that neither the Jazz or the Nuggets have any defenders <laughs> who who can guard a, a point guard who can score or a, a scoring guard, um, and and that is is kind of shown by. Uh, both these teams have Jokic and Gobert, who Gobert is obviously an elite defender, but when you put him in a ball screen, that's 
his one, I guess, flaw, right? He's he's in drop coverage. He's not that mobile. And when you don't have guards or defenders who can fight over the screens, you know, with That's any it, sort of intensity, right. yeah. that 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 allows open, clean looks from three. And when you're in this bubble environment, which I do think play has a factor where there's there's no fans and you're just kind of you know, it's it's almost like, you know, it's not open runs, but it's like, hey, you know, we're we're just playing five on five. You know, this is it's a playoff game, sure, but like it doesn't feel like a playoff game. You know, just there's nobody yelling at you, heckling you. There's no, you know, no no outside noise. You know, you get to you're you're going home, you're sleeping, you're resting, you're recovering, yeah. like your only focus is basketball. Um I think that that all kind of culminates into these guys got in a groove and the teams haven't really done anything to stop them yeah and to the point about uh gobert and that sort of being his weakness i also think this is one of those interactions that's making it worse i mean murray right if if you're not going to be able to get into him and push him around that high screen and the drop coverage he's going to love that pull up three he's going to he's going to live with that downhill momentum but then if you come up too high his what's his second favorite thing to do probably use that downhill momentum for a, a kamikaze attack of the hoop and, and even at six three um if he's not trying to dunk on guys apparently he's uh, making 360 layups so <laughs> and i think a lot of this started with uh Jokic and murray two-man game in in game one um i i think that, that they they found a groove early and and when they found it, they they found something that kind of was like, oh, well, they they can't stop this. They're not gonna guard this. Mm-hmm. And and once you figure that out, until the other team stops or, or or guards it, you're gonna keep doing it. You're gonna you're gonna keep in. You're gonna be in your rhythm. And so I, you know, confidence is 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 important. And when you keep seeing the same thing over and over again, well, no, you don't have to change anything. You just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, let me put you on the spot here because I certainly haven't thought about this, but it just popped into my head. The the sort of dynamic where typically with this offense, Jokic is the hub, right? He's the he's the center of the wheel, and you've got these guys kind of moving around his, whether it's handoffs or high post passing or whatever, right? Now in this series, it feels like Murray has more primacy than normal. It feels like Murray is more of the uh, kind of driving force of the machine. Um, have you seen... Any dynamic shift there? Do you think this is just Jamal making more shots and therefore his numbers go up? Or is there something to, hey, we're going to run more high pick and roll. We're going to have Murray back out and clear out more. We're going to make a a sort of a point of focus to get him more involved. And it's like Jokic is still averaging 26 points a game in the series, but it, it just feels different. You know, you don't have those huge assist numbers. You don't have as many possessions, I feel, uh, going through him. What do you think about that? It doesn't feel like he's in control, and I think that's what you're alluding to. Yeah. Is it feels like this is Murray's team right now. Yeah, and and, and you know it might be from going forward. You don't know. Maybe he he you know takes this leap and and you know it's not a leap. It's it's like a a, a jump. <laughs> it's a ba- like, it's a bound. Yeah, it's a bound. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and maybe maybe propels him going forward. I still think regular season, everything runs through Jokic because that's easy. You know, it's an easy mm-hmm. hub, hub to go through. And I think he's talented enough to where you can fall back on that. Um, but, I mean, I think it, it does – I think there's something to where, like, Jokic is allowing Murray to do this. And I say allowing by – he doesn't seem bothered by any of this. He, he seems enthusiastic yes, about it. Yes, happy about it, if um, anything. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, like he, he, he seems excited for him, which I think – is an awesome thing to see, especially from your teammate where, you know, these guys, you know, we all, we're all humans. They have, you know, they, they want to be the guy they want to take over. They want to have these moments. And, you know, if, if he's considered an afterthought, some people can get, you know, that's why teams break up, you know, that this is, these, these are why. And, you know, I think it's really cool for him to kind of be able to, to, to be able to step back uh, until he's needed. And they play a little two man game. And, and I think Jokic, his gravity helps. I think Gobert is mm. thinking about the pick and pop or, you know, the spot up three. Yep. I think that just in the back of his head is a little bit hesitant. So you see you see some, you know, some late contests by Gobert. I don't think it's the ultimate factor, but I think that is is important. And it's just it's really kind of fun to watch. Go, uh, Jokic, by the way, shooting forty nine percent 
from the three in this series, which seems like an aberration. But then you you go to this bubble ball. Maybe there's something to the combination of the shooting background being better and you know not having to travel and having rest and you don't have people yelling at you so you can get in that kind of flow state more easily like if you were in an open run the the three point percentages in this series um 44 percent as a team for the nuggets uh, their only player shooting under 40 percent in their rotation from three is monte morris He's made uh, four of 17, 24%. And, the, and for the Jazz, the exact same thing. The Jazz in the series are shooting, uh, boy, let's see if I can learn how to use a computer, 45%. And they basically have everyone, you know, they're like worst shooters or Jordan Clarkson at 36%, Joe Ingles at 37%. So it, it's been crazy. Yeah, it's just, and you know what? There's not a lot of defense being played. You know, like like I don't, I mean, the Jazz are a good defensive team, but they aren't the, the defensive team they used to be. You know, like they used to they used to be the defensive team. And it's just like when you watch it, you're like, all right, how much resistance is actually there? Like mm-hmm. how much how, how many of these shots are actually contested? Well, and, you know, some of the sh- no, but some of the shot making, like some of the shots Murray is making down the stretch in these last two wins. I mean, he's got like three or four in each game in the fourth quarter overtime where you're just crack you know huge step back three at the end of the clock to from 26 or 27 feet or something like that I, I i hear your point but i do think it's a combination right now of what we're seeing with some kind of porous defense with great shot making at the same time sure but i'm, I'm more speaking to like the teams are both shooting 44 and 45 percent like that just i mean i know i know you know these maybe the numbers may be a little bit exaggerated because it's a it's a you know it's what six games so far yeah, yeah. in the playoffs but like you know to me like why why you know that, that's all the, the reason behind it you know and i haven't delved enough you know i can't watch every game all the time so i didn't delve too too much but like watching the first three games pretty in depth like the nuggets can't guard a ball screen to save their life yeah like, they just are terrible at guarding a ball screen um, the Jazz, I feel like, have a good defensive system. They're just not executing, missing. You know, Bogdanovich doesn't help anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just the 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 Murray and and Mitchell shot making has been stupid. Like that's the only way to describe it. I got, like my wife was asking me how the game was going. I'm like, it's just dumb. Like it's just, I'm sitting here just going, no way. Like, come on, man. Like it's just it's it is and it's at times I, like I want to analyze why and. and I, I just kind of gave up after game five and I was like, you know what? This is too much fun. Like this is just, just watch these guys go and just laugh because it's incredible at times what they're doing. Yeah. And part of me wanted to, to go forever, but I mean, there is a next round to be played. Do you see either of these teams presenting a problem for the Clippers, whether, whether it's the nuggets that make it through or the jazz, uh, the nuggets. Yes. Uh, jazz, not so much. Ooh, okay. So let's stick with the Nuggets. Um, yeah. t- tell me what you see there that would potentially uh, create sort of at least a somewhat dangerous ma- dangerous matchup for LA. Uh, the Clippers showed in the last series against ob- okay, obviously Luka Doncic, right? I mean, special talent, in- incredible. But r- when Luka ran a ball screen, it never looked like the Clippers were ready for it. And mm. that is really, 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 really concerning going forward because you, go ahead. Do you, do you, well, I just want to clarify. Do you think that's with any defense uh, that they had on the court or just starting lineup or is that just a general observation? Most lineups didn't look comfortable against okay. it. And, and, I, and I mean that in the sense of like when they went smaller and, and they had even Harold at the, at the five, it looked OK. But like Harold just still didn't look like he was comfortable defending a ball screen. Um, and, and, you know, I think that the way the way forward is obviously to switch. But the problem is if Beverly is still out, you know, you have now you can just get Lou Williams in a switch. You can get you, know, you can you can pick on some players in a lineup, which I didn't like. Um, but, you know, if you have the Clippers playing their normal starting lineup, then that, that's that's exactly how the Jazz are defending the ball screen right now. See how that's going. And honest, I mean, the, the Clippers, in theory, Kawhi and Paul George should be able to do a better job on Murray. But they didn't do a very good job against Luka. Luka did whatever he wanted to do. Now, different types of players, like obviously if, if Jamal Murray is going to be not going for nothing but scoring, the Clippers could probably defend that a little bit easier. 
But the amount of pressure that the Mavericks were able to create with their five out lineup did hurt the Clippers a lot. Like it, it really put them in some interesting scenarios where I was like, oh, I haven't seen the Clippers struggle with that before. You know, like it's it's mm. just it presented a lot of problems and questions that I was like, man, the Clippers don't look they don't look like what I thought they would look like. Um, and I think that is the Nuggets being able to go five out with with Jokic at the five, I think, presents more problems than the Jazz will have against the, the Clippers. Yeah, that part of it makes sense just in terms of the difference between the Nuggets and the Jazz. Um, I, I do wonder how much of what we saw is specific to not just Luka and his size and the way he uses his body and his passing, but also sort of the way the Mavericks are used to playing five, you know, the guys that are out there, Hardaway, Finney Smith, Seth Curry, when he comes in, like there, there's been a season long sort of comfort with those units uh, launching threes or playing outside and around that system. I, I did think that was something that, uh, you know, bothered the Clippers, but I just, I'm not, Sure, you haven't sold me entirely yet on the fact that the the Nuggets could replicate that. I do think switching from Luca to Murray at the point of attack is kind of a a completely different animal. Yeah, I agree with that, and, and I don't think. I mean, I still think the, Cl- the Clippers win the next series in five. You know, I don't. I don't think it's going to be anything where it's like they're going to Game Seven. Like, I just think that the Clippers are much better than both of these teams. The Mavs obviously have the best offense in NBA history, so it's a little bit of a harder comparison. Um, but I, I think the Clippers win the next series in five versus either opponent. But I do think the Nuggets will present them problems more than the Jazz will, I guess, if that's what makes sense. Boy, before I let you go, I really want to get your take on the uh, the Battle of L.A. if you think that's what's coming. I do as well. I think we're headed for the Battle I of do. L.A., um, I, without without you know going into because I'm sure you'll have awesome videos and material on it. Just at a high level, how do you do you give an advantage to one team or the other just in terms of the way those clubs match up? You know, so here's I've been literally studying this all season. <laughs> um, I've watched all four regular yep. season matchups at least three times. Yep. Um, I've studied the stats to try to pair it with video. I cannot for the life of me figure out who's going to win that series. Okay. I, I um, love that. Yeah it's, yeah. it's just, I think they're they're They both present problems for each other. Agreed. And they like LeBron, Kawhi, Paul George, Anthony Davis. I think Anthony Davis swings a series. However he plays. I think if he plays at the, the best he's ever played, LA wins. I yep. think if he struggles, they lose. I, I just think that's the crux of it because who in the Clippers is going to guard him? Yeah, if you're not throwing Paul George and Kawhi on him. I mean, maybe at times, but like he, I feel like he has the advantage there. And one of the things that will be interesting, at least, is the offensive rebounding idea of the Lakers. Like, are mm-hmm. you going to sl- yep. stop the clip the Clippers in transition? Are you going to set up your defense? Are you going to crash the boards like you have done all season? How much does Dwight play? How much does Javale play? You know, there's just so many questions. But I think the crux of it comes down to Anthony Davis. It it almost feels like an oversimplification, but I think the series to me is so close that it's one of those things where and it doesn't have to necessarily be huge numbers, but if he's playing at that high level, he's influencing the game, he's creating shots for himself or his teammates, he's mucking up, you know, stuff on the other end defensively, that is the kind of thing where you say, Okay, Anthony Davis didn't do that. It seems hard for the Lakers to win the series. Anthony Davis does do that. And then you start thinking it's probably more likely that they win the series than not. My cop-out, by the way, was always that it was going to be in Staples Center and they were going to have a seven-game home court advantage. <laughs> and that's gone. So now yep. I just – I got no idea. I, I do, I've do. i said this before. I do think missing Avery Bradley uh, hurts them in a matchup like that. Um, but I've always been lower on the Clippers than everyone else, and they, you know, have things that can be exploited as well. So who knows? I'm glad we've covered this ground and solved this problem today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gibson, that was fantastic. I, I really appreciate you coming on and um, educating us on so many of these things. Where can people find more of your work, follow you? Now's the time. Whatever, whatever kind of plugging you want to do, you can have as much time as you want. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, the best way is probably Twitter uh, at Half Court Hoops. Um, I'm on there tweeting constantly, throwing out different videos and, and updates. It's easy just to you know 
throw a quick information out there. Um, Half Court Hoops on YouTube as well. I've been trying to put more effort in the channel and more breakdowns and, and do more in-depth work. And then um, I have a website, thebasketballplaybook.com. Um, I have a membership program for for coaches and, and fans alike where I have every NBA team's playbook on there. You know, like I think I'm up to 285 playbooks on there for like 20 bucks a month. Um, so I try to create a lot of value on there and, and learn at a, an affordable price. Um, and then, you know, just basically Twitter is, is, is the way to go. Um, and that's that's what I try to do. If you have any questions, uh, DMs are open. I'm available to talk basketball anytime. If you want to get into the X's and O's, the hardcore stuff, the coaching perspective, uh, I think Gibson's the guy. Half Court Hoops, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for listening to this podcast all the way to the end. If you want to help support the show, one of the best ways to do that is check out our sponsors. This is sponsored by The Athletic, so go to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. I think I misread that earlier. It's got to be pod, Thinking Basketball Pod, that helps support the show. Uh, you get 40% off. Uh, your subscription there. You can also go to patreon.com slash thinking basketball, uh, sign up for different membership tiers. We have extra content. That video I alluded to earlier that will drop on Patreon later today about the Rockets and sort of their offensive approach at the end of game six. You can check that out. So once again, thanks so much for your support. Wherever you're listening, North Carolina, California, anywhere else in the world, as always, I hope you are having a great day.